well, I don't want to lose myself in academia. I don't want to lose where I come from. I don't want to lose my heritage, my identity, what I stand for, what I believe for as a woman of color. I don't want to lose any of it. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hello everyone, my name is Yusuf Kamel and I am the Foundation for Liberating Minds Global Vision Director. I will be your host today for this episode of Dream Radically. Today, I have Naif and Ahad with me to discuss a topic that has been central to most of our personal conversations as two MA students of color, higher education. Naifa opens up about her experiences and understanding who she is as a person and her place in higher education, as well as what she believes needs to be done in the future. Hi, Naif. How are you? Hi. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, so it's great to have you here. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be having a little bit of a discussion about BIPOC in higher education, which is a topic that I believe both of us are uh, fairly familiar with. So I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself briefly. Uh, my name is Naifa Nihad, and I come from the Maldives. Right now, I am a graduate student at the University of Oklahoma. I'm doing my master's in uh, global studies. I completed my bachelor's in international studies also at the University of Oklahoma. And like you said, this topic about diversity and being a woman of color in higher education is something that um, really we talk about quite often. And I'm really excited and happy to be here. And thank you for inviting me. I am very happy to have you here. So we are in general, very much familiar with the idea of how it is to be people of diversity, if I may, within higher education uh, from very different lenses, of course. Each of us comes with their own different identities, their own different burdens, their own different, their own different layers to the struggle and to the space of academia in general. So I want to start things off with a question that I have personally found myself asking recently, which is, when did you first realize that you are a person of color, a woman of color, or um, international? I know that to a certain extent, of course, we all know, but when did you kind of first realize? I think I first realized that uh, when I got the opportunity to study abroad at the United World College of um, Southern Africa, Waterford. And it was very interesting. I do remember this was the first day of classes and I chose to study history at higher level because there's a really good focus on African history. And I really wanted to know more about Swaziland and South Africa and Southern Africa in general. And when you went to class, it was a very weird situation where one side of the room, it was just black people. And the other side of the room was white people. And when I entered the class, I was a little bit late. And, you know, that's something very normal for me. When I entered the classroom and when I was trying to find a seat to sit, I didn't know where 
I didn't know in the sense that should I go sit with the black people, but I didn't, it didn't feel right. And uh, I didn't want to sit with the white people either. So I just sat in the middle of the class and the teacher even made a really funny comment about how, you know, you can really see a really uh, interesting uh, range of like colors, you know, one side with the black and then me in the middle, um, like the Indian of the class and the other side were the whites. And it was very strange to me because in the Maldives, we don't really have black people or white people. We just have shades of brown. And I felt um, a lot of colorism when I was younger and growing up. I know I'm dark skinned. I'm, I know I'm a dark skinned South Asian woman, but I didn't really feel that difference with my race until I went to um, UWC. And then when I came to the United States, um, I think at OU, I didn't feel alienated as much. But there were many, many comments that made me feel very uncomfortable. For example, how you're very beautiful for being a dark-skinned woman or, hey, you're the first dark-skinned woman I'm dating or I'm, I'm going on a date with. And these kind of comments made me feel very strange. And I didn't know why I was feeling really strange about it because factually that may be very true. You know, like I am a dark-skinned woman and th that might be the first time that they were going on a date with somebody who looked like me or of my skin color. But those kind of comments really made me feel very, very strange. And I didn't know why I was feeling strange about it. It was just uncomfortable. And that was when I started questioning my race, my identity, what group that I belong to, especially being the only Maldivian at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma in general. It was difficult for me to find my place because I'm not Indian. Our cultures are very, very similar but that's not where I come from. And uh, whenever I hang out with other Indians or other South Asians, I always feel a little bit out of place as well. So that is when I really started questioning, okay, who am I? Or what race do I belong to? Or am I a woman of color? Or, or in that sense, which category do I belong to? Because in some sense, you know, I am a little bit privileged than many of the other races as well. I look more Indian. So when people see me, they originally associate me with Indians. And sometimes, unfortunately, that does give me a little bit of privilege because of all the stereotypes of Indians being like hardworking and quiet about the political situation in the country and many of these things that come with it. And I think that was really when I started questioning my own identity and where I come from and how I look like and where I stand in many of the political and like social situations that happens in the country. There are a lot of kind of similarities to what I experienced when I was in the United World College of the Atlantic, which was also when I started kind of realizing a few things that I didn't really know how to deal with. Because as you mentioned, kind of back home, I was very unaware of racial issues. Not that we do not have many, many racial issues in Egypt, but I was kind of unaware of my both privilege in Egypt and outside, of course and setback in many other ways. Once I was outside of my kind of bubble, national bubble, if you will, and it was actually also history class, which was, I entered the class and it was European history, which I didn't really choose to take European history, but can't say that I'm not glad that I took it. But there were a lot of things that we were taught in that classroom that I don't, I didn't really know how to deal with. I didn't really understand why. I wasn't taught really much of that stuff before, and I also didn't understand why a lot of history that related to me didn't really make it into any of the history books that we were teaching. 
it was a very kind of confusing thing that I had to deal with. And everybody else kind of knew what was going on. I was in a class of mostly Europeans who knew everything that is to be known about World War One, World War Two, and the interwar years and whatever it is we were learning at that time. But I knew about, you know, what happened during the Swiss crisis, or I knew what happened in other parts of Middle Eastern history, right? And it was something that we never really touched upon. And it wasn't that I didn't really know anything. It was just that it was a very different set of skills, a very different set of privileges that were layered on differently in that educational space. And then, of course, there were multiple other ways within uh, the UK which uh, that happened. And I think most of them actually was related to the U.S., which was when I was applying for schools in the U.S. on the Common App, I was first encountered by the what are Middle Easterners <laughs> question, which I believe is a question that is being asked even by our congressional representation right now, <laughs> which is what are Middle Easterners white? Because technically, according to the U.S. Census, and that was a huge shock to me, it was, you know, Middle Easterners are white. And I was very uncomfortable <laughs> saying that I am because I'm, I'm not. And that was the biggest shock to me is that during that time, I didn't realize that Middle Easterners were considered white in the U.S. census. And it was a very weird experience and a very different experience to what I had in mind about my identity previously. I think another aspect of learning of who I am or my skin color or my identity was there was this one time in at Waterford, they were organizing Africa Week. And they were doing a photo journal where somebody says something about Africa or African culture or Swaziland or anything related to the continent of Africa in general. And one of the photographers asked me to if I want to do a photo shoot and if I wanted something to include about how I feel about the African culture. And then my roommate was like, wait, but why are you asking her? She's not African. And then at, at that time, I remember feeling a little bit offended. And I was like, you know what? I'm not, but I am here for two years. And I do have few things that I love. Well, many things that I love about the continent and many things that I was learning in my history class and by talking to my friends at Waterford. And I didn't realize what she really meant until much, much later when, you know, it was really not my place to find my way through the Africa Week event. It was not my event. My, my place was to listen. My place was to amplify the voices of those of them who come from the African culture, you know, who, come, who can really say things about their own culture. And I think that was one of the things that I realized as well, that sometimes when I am also trying to make space for, especially being a woman of color, I also need to step down when I need to. That is also a very interesting thing because we also find ourselves lost in what our identities are and we kind of try to, in many ways, latch onto other things that might help us find that sense of community or sense of identity that we're often kind of confused about when we enter spaces that don't really care for what we are, <laughs> really, in many ways. So let's talk a little bit more about higher ed. So I want to ask you, what have your experiences been as an international woman of color, both as an undergrad and a graduate student? We both go to the University of Oklahoma, and we both go to the College of International Studies. That is a very interesting question that I've been having a lot of really strong feelings for. 
And I think each semester, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I don't know if that's because I am learning more about my identity and about myself as a woman of color, or if I'm learning more about um, the political situation of the United States, or um, I guess like theories of international studies or um, reading more about international studies. I don't know what that is, but with every semester, I see myself getting more and more frustrated about being a woman of color in higher education. And I think that is because it's getting more and more difficult to let really small comments just go by because at some point, they're not just small comments for me anymore. For example, when professors and students talk about colonization or the kind of history that our countries or our part of the world are still really struggling to get out of, when they portray these kind of um, world events in a way that they are entrepreneurial or anything with a positive synonym, it does not sit right with me. And I understand that when we talk about broader global studies or international relations, there are certain things that we definitely need to be talking about. And of course, there are like economic aspects of it and business aspect of it. I don't understand it, but um, maybe other, other students and professors do. But it does not sit right with me that you can mention something so horribly wrong and that not followed by, you know, the other side of it. The other side in the sense that how our people are still struggling to get over many of the things that happened in our history and how colonization might have ended. But in many, many ways, our countries are still being affected by a lot of the greater powers of the world. And those kind of comments just does not sit right with me. And another aspect of it is whenever people talk about making space or, you know, giving a voice, this kind of language it really takes the agency away from people of color and black people who have been fighting for their space for centuries and just that thought of you know what i'm gonna make that space for you or you know what i'm gonna give you a voice no like i've had my voice and uh, black people have had their voice too it's just that you know some people's voice do not get amplified enough or people don't listen to them enough i don't know what it is but there are these specific language that i take a lot of offense in as well and I do try to understand that, for example, English is not my first language either. And I make a lot of mistakes when I speak in English. And sometimes many things that I want to say do not come off as the way that I want to say it. And with every respect to that, I still do not think that, especially at this time and age, when there are so many resources that you have access to, um, that you can keep on making, you know, like these kind of mistakes like that especially in higher education. Higher education in general, I feel like it's a very, very privileged space. And I struggle to find myself within it, or even if I belong in there, or if I'm too sensitive, or uh, yeah, there was this one time when, whenever I would talk about climate crisis, or whenever I talk about the rising sea levels and how the Maldives is being affected by it, um, you can really hear my voice shake especially when I'm like speaking about that in a class or something. And not once or twice, but many, many times like I've been told that, you know, you get too sensitive or you get too emotional whenever you talk about it. But how can I not? How can I not when I might become one of the first climate refugees 
when there's such a big possibility that I might be losing my language, my culture, my identity, um, everything that my community has been, you know, standing for for many, many, many years. How can I not be sensitive or emotional about it? Also, like, what is so wrong about being emotional or sensitive about something that you truly, genuinely care so much for? So there are many of these comments that I hear very, very often in higher education, being a woman of color, being international, coming from a small island nation. And at some point, it just gets to a point where you really cannot let these comments go by. You bring up actually a lot of really great points. These are all things that are very easily slid into conversations that people have and kind of suck (laughs) in general. Because they're, as you said, they're there so often. I'm actually glad that you mentioned colonialism. I personally find it very hard to look into any positive of anything that is colonial or imperialist or anything related to something like that. And I know for a fact that you have in the past called people out on it. How do people in general react to something like that? To you calling them out or to you saying something that might not sit well with them? that kind of contradicts their beliefs that colonialism might have been for a higher purpose? Generally, people get very, very defensive. They almost always bring up the First Amendment. They also do bring up the fact that I'm not allowing them to express their freedom of speech and how people are free to have their own opinion. And these are many, many things that I've heard people say to me once I say that, you know, you really cannot see this in this way. And and these are the kind of things that um, I question myself too, if I can call them out on their own opinion or uh, if I should be kinder or less harsh. And I honestly do not know a better approach to this because first of all, it's very, very offensive. And especially those of us who are coming from Again, you know, this the, the other side of the world who got very, very negatively affected by colonialism and we are still struggling to get out of it. And whenever people express that it's their right to have their own opinion, and I can see I can see that, but at the same time, I just don't understand how people can be very, very insensitive. And that is something that I really haven't known or haven't learned how to get around. Um, I still do call people out every time I see anybody say something like that. And I do give really long reviews on professors who have mentioned, you know, things about colonialism in that sense as well, because I feel like, you know, that's the least that I could do. I have reported few professors to the College of International Studies as well. But especially when it comes to the First Amendment or that aspect of um, freedom of expression and people being free to have their own opinion, I don't know how I feel about it because it might just be that they don't know enough or haven't met enough people from these countries. But at the same time, I don't want to keep on making excuses for them either. And I think this actually is related to another great point that you brought up, which is being too sensitive in academia, which kind of cements the idea of how privileged somebody needs to be to be in academia so they wouldn't be affected by the stuff that they're studying, whether it be climate change, as you mentioned, or whether it be colonialism, or whether it be something that is related to their history or um, collective trauma or something that is very much ingrained kind of deep within your own personal identity, personal self, and all of that stuff. 
how does your experience in academia make you feel about that space and being in that space? I know you mentioned a few things about agency. I know you mentioned a few things about belonging, which are all very relevant. First of all, I do want to say this one more time that I feel like higher education is an extremely privileged space for very, very privileged people. And I do find myself questioning whether even if I belong there, but every time that I'm able to speak about my country, um, about my people or about my experiences um, as a woman of color in higher education, I do realize the importance of making my space. No matter what, I feel like I am definitely going to keep on making my space while also protecting my space. So for example, when I do not call people out every single time. It really just depends on how I'm feeling that day. If I have a good mental health space, if I'm feeling up for it, I feel like I definitely do make space, but it's super important to protect your space as well. Um, and the reason why I feel that way is because how I see the privileged space is, I feel like I'm already in it, in the sense that I'm the only Moldavian at the University of Oklahoma. From the United World College, the National Committee of the Maldives usually selects about two to three students to go abroad every year. And so our National Committee, the alumni are barely 50 people. And it's such a small community of the broader Maldivians that have the opportunity to study abroad at UWC or go to university in the United States. Or these are all very, very privileged positions that I've been very fortunate to get for myself. And I always keep in mind that I definitely do not want to lose my head in it. For example, I don't want to lose myself in academia. I don't want to lose where I come from. I don't want to lose my heritage, my identity, what I stand for, what I believe for as a woman of color. I don't want to lose any of it. There are many, many professors who look like me, who have taught me, that have very different values and sometimes I forget that they are even um, professors of color. And when I see myself in higher education, when I see my future and in academia, I definitely do not want to see myself in that position. I definitely do not want to get to a place where I feel so privileged that I have all these access to many of the things that generally people do not and that, that I lose myself in it. That is one thing that I always try to remind myself that you know I am a woman of color. I have really strong values. I have very strong connection to where I come from, for my people, my community. And that is something, not to lose that, is something that I definitely want to hold on to, especially for my future in higher education. That is very true. I do agree in many ways that this is pretty much an experience that is exhausting. And seeing this makes you worry for yourself <laughs> and for other fellow BIPOC in higher education in general. And as somebody who has also considered the future in academia as well, it's very important to me to kind of keep in mind exactly what you're saying, to try and not lose yourself in all of this, because you have to be a certain type of person to either manage how this affects you or to be privileged enough so this doesn't affect you. And more often than not, BIPOC are, are in the first category and they often have to worry or they have to adapt or they have to change how they talk or change how they think or just be more 
integrated, if I may, into a system that is kind of very exhausting in many ways. So what is to be done? Who needs to do it? And what is it that needs to be done? There's a really fine line between what needs to be done and who needs to be done, especially when we talk about agency once again. There's a very thin line between someone making that space for me or me trying to make that space for myself. And that is something that I haven't been able to figure out. I think the biggest thing that we can all do is to question our privilege, even us as people of color. I think the term BIPOC as well, it's such a broad umbrella term that not everyone's experiences are the same. And so, especially when we talk about like people of color and I just to understand how are certain things like privileging me and how are certain things that I am at a disadvantage of just to keep on like checking yourself is one of the biggest things that we can all do. And always asking yourself like, is this opportunity, um, would this might be a better option, a better opportunity for like somebody else is somebody else might be more capable of like taking this job or, you know, there's just questioning like things like that. For example, if you get a chance to, let's say, give a presentation about diversity, is somebody else more qualified to do this? Or um, am I speaking over somebody else in the class or just to keep in mind of your privilege and to always uh, keep on like checking yourself um, that is very very important and also keep in mind like whose voices you are like amplifying for example i have been feeling a lot of this kind of frustration especially with the current climate crisis and how a lot of the voices of white activists activists from the united states activists from europe um, when their voices get more amplified then for example eco-activists from the Maldives who grow up talking about the climate crisis, who when one of the, our first conversations are about sea level rise, coral, coral bleaching, and the negative consequences of the climate crisis. And when, our, when the voices of the eco-activists from the Maldives do not get amplified as enough, then we're doing something wrong, you know? We are doing something wrong when activists of color or activists from other frontline communities are not at the front line of the current climate conversation. And that is one thing that I try to keep in mind, for example, with my new organization, EcoBaddies as well. It is an effort to recenter and reshift that focus on the frontline communities and the communities of color and communities that are disadvantaged by the current climate crisis. People can so often listen to white activists from the United States or in Europe, but their experiences are not the same as, as ours in the sense that they have the privilege to keep on talking about the climate crisis. But on the other hand, our activists from back home or our communities are experiencing it. So there's a huge difference in that sense as well. So just to always keep yourself in check Whose voices are you amplifying? Who are, whose voices are you talking about? How you are talking about people of color as well. I've noticed this a lot in the last few months, especially with my white friends or white people in our friend circles, how they talk about people of color, the kind of words that they use when they talk about people of color, women of color, and just to always, always keep yourself in check question everything, question your beliefs, question where the beliefs are coming from, question you who you are listening to, who you're reading about. These are just like few of the many, many things that you can do about it. And 
I think there's a role for everyone in this fight and it's, it's different. And sometimes you have to just step down and give the space for somebody else. And, but everybody has, has something to do, has something very, very important to do in this fight. Naifa, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I'm so glad to have had you here today. How can we follow you on Ecobaddies? Thank you so much once again for inviting me. This has been a very lovely conversation as well. It's not a lovely topic. It's a very, very exhausting topic, but a topic that we definitely should keep on talking about. And you can follow Ecobaddies on Instagram. It's eco, E-C-O underscore baddies, B-A-D-D-I-E-S. And we do feature many, many eco-activists from all over the world. Um, we have collaborated with eco-activists from the Maldives, Climate from India, and eco-activists from Mexico. And we have upcoming uh, scheduled Instagram lives with eco-activists from Colombia and many, many other frontline communities and the communities of color and mostly eco-activists who are women as well. Um, many from underrepresented communities whose voices really do deserve to be amplified in the current climate crisis. Thank you so, so much, Naifa. You can also catch Naifa's latest article for the Global Vision Initiative on our website, foundationforliberatingminds.com. And we'll see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at foundation4lm, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4lm. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.